You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 26. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. So a lot of our listeners are in non-monogamous relationships, and Cassie and I are in a non-monogamous relationship ourselves. And if you're in a non-monogamous relationship, and probably even if you're not, you know that even though there have been huge strides made in LGBTQ rights over the last several years, non-monogamy is still a long way from being accepted in mainstream society. And that lack of acceptance means that there aren't legal structures in place to provide the same rights and protections that there are If you're a monogamous person, say, getting married, you know, it can be hard to have basic important rights, things that are simple in monogamous relationships, things like combined finances, things like if your partner gets sick, being able to ride with them to the hospital, being able to have a say in their medical care, being able to visit them, you know, protection in case a relationship breaks up or in case somebody passes away. Those are all things that we have to design and put in place ourselves. So today we're going to be talking to Ben Shanker. He is a lawyer who focuses on providing legal support to LGBT and poly families. And we're going to be talking about how to protect yourselves and protect your families in non-monogamous relationships. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe. So today we're talking to Ben Shanker. Uh, Ben Shanker is a lawyer who focuses on providing legal support to families, especially LGBT, GSM, and polyamorous families, utilizing a variety of techniques ranging from cohabitation agreements and parenting plans to estate planning, and preparing to obtain cohabitation rights via alternative mechanisms. Ben can also offer tax advice, especially as it relates to prenuptial agreements. Ben's admitted to practice in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and D.C. He's a member of the board of directors for the D.C. LGBT Bar Association and has earned awards from the California State Bar and Legal Aid Society of San Diego for his work. And you've published a bunch of different articles about divorce and estate planning in Maryland and... uh, you're about to put out an article on how LGBT, the, uh, how attorneys can use the lessons learned by LGBT GSM attorneys to help protect non-married and polyamorous families. How are you doing today, Ben? Good. How are you? Doing good. Doing very good. And we're really excited to have you on. This is actually a, a kind of a fortuitous meeting because we've actually had lots and lots of questions, you know, along, along the lines for us to speak to somebody in law, especially regarding polyamory and that kind of stuff. Well, good. I'm glad to be able to help. I hope this is informative. Yeah, and I understand you have a disclaimer you have to read us before we keep going. Yes, uh, just, I don't know. Do you, do you remember the uh, show Pete and Pete? I don't. My 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 partner here is more uh, culturally knowledgeable than I am. Yes. <laughs> well, in any case, on that show, there was always a joke where there was a girl who is a friend but not a girlfriend so you could be clients, and I am an attorney, but there's no attorney-client relationship. And anything I say is intended as information and not as legal advice. And if you have a question, you should always ask an attorney licensed in your jurisdiction. 
I just when you're when you're saying that there's no attorney client privilege, I can't get out of my head uh Saul from Breaking Bad, like put a dollar in my pocket, put a dollar in my pocket, and then you'll be my client. <laughs> we'll have privilege. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like that. I mean, he's not the best example of an ethical <laughs> attorney, but uh but yeah, and especially given that we are talking hopefully to a lot of people, uh that's no, there's no privilege right now. But there's also no attorney-client relationship, so don't go off and do something and then say, no, an attorney d- told me to do it. That's not what I want. Okay. Well, I'd, be, I'd be really interested just to hear, first of all, how you got started practicing uh, you know, this kind of law, practicing family law with the type of clients that you do. Well, let me uh, just say, so I, I started off as a tax attorney, and it was more boring than it sounded. And a couple of years ago, I decided I have all this knowledge. I have a passion. I'm going to do something else. So I already knew estate planning. And then I decided I'm just going to spend, I think, a year learning family law. So I did some divorce cases and learned a lot about mediation. And then I opened my firm about a year and a half ago. And it covers a lot of areas of law, estate planning, taxes, family law. And I use all of those to try and cobble together relationships and rights that can be as close to marriage or at least provide as much protection as possible. How long have you been, so how long have you been focusing, you know, specifically on family law then? Well, I started, I started learning about Two and a half years ago, actually, my first paper was about estate planning and divorce, so sort of them. But uh, two to three years is how long I've actually been really focused on family law. And how'd you how'd you start doing family law for uh, like the LGBT and the poly communities? Well, when I started doing family law, I knew that the reason that I wanted to learn it was specifically to help the poly, the GSM, LGBT communities. So that was my guiding direction in learning family law. It was I had more of an interest in helping our community than I did in learning family law because family law is interesting, but I'd rather be doing something else. But it was the the passion to help our community and the wonderful people that are in it that drove me to learn family law. Okay, so you're already you're already a part of the community before. That's that's what I was curious about. Like it was something where you you became a lawyer and then you you know, ran across people when you got interested, but you, so you, you came at this, like you're already in the community and you came at this from a perspective of wanting to help. Exactly. I had realized I was poly before, uh, I was a lawyer and then I realized I was poly and then I decided why not just combine the two. Awesome. So what kind of things do poly clients come to you for? Ooh, that's, uh, there can be a lot of different issues. I recently consulted on a prenup for two people who are poly. Um, I've done regular domestic violence, uh, and I'm working with someone to do a mediation. I've been asked to consult on parenting plans so that multiple people can be parents. Those are some of the big issues. Uh, cohabitation agreements are another one. Uh, someone explained this to me the other day uh, that a lot of people think of cohabitation agreements as 
what you see in shows like the Big Bang Theory, where it's just being persnickety about when you can go to the bathroom. But, you know, cohabitation agreements can actually hold a lot of power when people are not married. And I've also worked with wills and trusts and power of attorneys to help people have stronger relationships when they're not stronger legal relationships when they're not married. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, were there any uh, situations since you were, you know, Polly before becoming a lawyer, were there any situations that you ran into where you were like, man, I could really use a lawyer who's familiar with, with Polly Amory that kind of maybe drove you towards being interested in that? Well, remember I was, I was a lawyer, then I was Polly. Uh, right. I'm sorry. But I mean, before you started the family law thing. Yes, it was raising children is a big one. Making sure that assets are protected is another big one. Uh, Multiple marriage is not legal anywhere in the United States. And there's about 1,100 benefits that people can get by being married. So I thought, all right, I'm a creative guy. I know something about a bunch of different issues. Why not try and cobble this together? So like I said, the big things would be property, making sure you're protected. Uh, because all relationships end either through breaking up or divorce or by someone dying. And, you know, at the end of that, it's sad because, you know, a relationship is over, but so often it happens to be that if you're not, if you haven't taken any steps beforehand, there can be other significant issues. So why is being like a non-monogamous person in a legal case different than being someone who's in more of like a traditional relationship? What really depends on what case it is. I mean, if it's, if you're on trial for murder, I don't think the judge is really, or the jury is really going to care. Oh, well, this guy, you know, has, he's found a unicorn. Good for him. I mean, if I were the judge, I would just be a little bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are some concerns about people contacting child protective services and those generally shouldn't be a concern because child protective services should be better than this but there can be for example if you are fired for being polyamorous that's very different from being fired because you're a GSM or you're a racial minority or because of your gender because being a GSM, being a member of a racial minority, and being uh, and being fired because of your gender would all might all be illegal because those things are protected classes. Being polyamorous is not a protected class, right? And you don't have as many, uh, or really, I think in a lot of cases, really any any kind of uh, recourse in that situation. I have not seen any ability to, I mean, the big question would be, is it, so say you were fired because you violated a moral clause in your employment agreement, then you might be able to say, oh, that was just, pre- or, that was just an excuse. But no, there wouldn't, there's not a lot of protections for people being polyamorous. So it really depends on the big issue. Now I know, for example, I was talking about this the other night. I did a presentation on kink law. and But I mentioned this. There was a case in Massachusetts where there was a person who died. He had a poly partner. And he left her 
money. Now, her family stepped in and said, no, no, no. She's just using sex to bait him into giving her stuff. It's called undue influence. And the judge agreed. And then she ended up not getting anything. And the reason I know about this is because there was a GoFundMe because she could not afford to appeal the decision. So when it shouldn't have had anything to do with it, but people can use prejudices to try and persuade judges or juries. Yeah. And it's, you know, that, that, that's the kind of situation I think that, that terrifies a lot of us who are in, in poly relationships, you know, not so much the, the losing a job, although I think that's, that's definitely something depending on where you work, but you know, the, the knowledge that you could have a partner who you've maybe spent your life with and just due to the way that our society structures relationships, they could really, if you don't have stuff set up, well, if something happens, you know, be left out in the cold. And, and I think, you know, that's one reason that it's, so it's funny, uh, Cassie's grandfather is, he's an attorney and he's also uh, religious. He doesn't do family law, but he's, but even though he's religious, he's very of the opinion that, uh, you know, we, we should replace uh, marriage with uh, contracts negotiated by attorneys for however many sets of people are interested in being involved in it. Yeah, he said beyond his uh, religious belief, he really believes that marriage is a contract just like any other. And as long as everybody is going into it with understanding and legal and advice, legal advice <laughs> with everyone having an attorney on board, anybody should be able, who is a consenting adult, to be able to form the types of relationships they want. Well, that, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research about this recently, and there is a lot of differing opinions on whether marriage is just simply a contract or whether it's a status. Because what I mentioned cohabitation agreements a minute ago, and the and I assume have you both heard the term palimony? I actually have not. I've heard alimony, but you said palimony, P-A-L? I did. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, if you've ever seen The Birdcage, uh, they mention it in there. But there was an actor, Lee Marvin, who was supposed to give a bunch of money to his live-in girlfriend. When he died, that didn't happen. She sued for the estate. Or she sued his estate for that money, and... Uh, some clever reporter said it's alimony for pals or palimony. And after that, we have cohabitation agreements. In a cohabitation agreement, like I said, you can agree with someone you're living with and not married to. And you can say, well, when the relationship ends, I'm going to give you this much money because you haven't been bringing any cash, but you've been supporting me and helping me to bring in my cash or something like that. And like your grandfather said, you know, you need to have legal advice, informed consent, full knowledge of the material facts. But, and there are ways to do that. It's complex. Uh, and Maryland case law is not great about it. I think there was only one case that was good in 2010, but... I'd be really interested in hearing, hearing some of those things. You know, something I think that is kind of a double-edged sword in a lot of ways is I, I think part of the thing about the way marriage exists now is that I think a lot of times you enter into marriage 
entering into a contract and not entirely realizing a lot of the terms of that contract because a lot of people just don't pay any attention to what the law is behind a lot of the stuff. You know what I mean? So I think that is one benefit to designing your relationships and having to sit down and do things like sit down with a lawyer. Um, you know, even though it is, it, it does suck in a lot of ways. It also is good that you have to intentionally think out and design those things versus just kind of, uh, you know, saying I do, and you've, you've essentially created a whole contract and not discussed most of the terms of it. Yeah, I, I wrote one of my blog posts was the problem is when you want to enter into a legal relationship that isn't marriage, you have to sit down and there might be many lawyers because everybody needs to have legal legal advice and everyone's interests are different. And then once it's signed, you don't even get an open bar or a band, not even a DJ. So you're exactly right. When you get married, for example, I used to, I went to law school in California. And when I got married from then on, half of everything that I would earn or that my spouse would earn would go to the other person. So before we divorced, she in theory owned a third of my law degree. I don't understand how that works, but that's how it is. But when you get married, you know, you have different things relating to taxes are a big issue. You have automatic rights for inheritance. So if you get married and you don't have a will, when one person dies, the other person gets an automatic share plus some other money from your estate. And I don't think a lot of people know about that. And then there's also issues with regard to children. Uh, it's just, there are, like I said, 1,100 federal laws. And Maryland has quite a number of them too. And there are a ton of benefits or disadvantages, however you want to put it, to being married. Well, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what you think some of those most important benefits are that you try and replicate when you're creating legal agreements for, uh, for poly people and poly families. Well, I think one of the biggest ones is inheritance. Like I said, in Maryland, when, and it's true in most states, I, I believe all of them, but I just don't know the laws for every state. But it, when one married person dies, the other person is entitled to what is called a spousal share. I think it used to be called dower and curtsy because lawyers like silly words because we realize we'll make money having to explain them and we'll charge for the time. But now how it works is so when one person dies, you get, depending on what, how, and whether you have adult kids or not, you could get, you know, a good percentage of it plus some extra cash, I believe. So that's a big one. Another one relating to children is that when a woman has a child, and when I say a woman, I just mean the person who bears the child. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be exclusive to trans people or anything like that. Vagina havers. Sure, that works. Um, but when, well, when that person has the child, the spouse, especially when it's a cis woman, cis man, is presumed to be the father. When the, woman, when the mother is not married, then the, you have to figure out who is the father. So 
imagine that there are a cis woman and a cis man are both married and the cis woman is pregnant. Now the father ends up being presumed to be the father at birth, but if they're poly and they're not fluid bonded, then maybe that's not the case. If that's not the case, then what you would have to do is make sure to fix that and fix it quickly because even if the father is not the genetic father of the child, if you wait too long, then they'll say, no, 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 it's in the best interest of the child to keep this father as the father of the child because they have a good relationship. So inheritance and kids, how about stuff regarding like, um, you know, I think one of the big, uh, well, I mean, I, I think two other big areas I'd be interested in hearing your input on is, is, is you know, finances just beyond, uh, beyond inheritance. And then also, um, I think a big thing for a lot of people is like, you know, medical stuff. Like what happens if something happens to my partner? But he goes even further than that. But I'm going to I'm going to let you talk about those two. All right. Well, let's uh, well, let's talk first about the finances. So when two people get married, then it's not like in California where everything is community property. But how it works is you might have things titled whichever way. And while the marriage exists, nobody cares. You don't care what happens in a good relationship. You can figure that out. But at the end of it, what happens is that they figure out everything that was earned during the time of the marriage. So every bit of money, every penny that you get that wasn't received by either inheritance or gift to one person that is thrown into a big pool and then they have to figure out how to divide it. And then maybe one person has to pay the other person money. So when you have two people who aren't married now, regardless of whether the other person is married or not, that doesn't work out like that. So say you have A and B are married, and then C is part of their triad, and C lives with them. So A and B have their money worked out however they want. C is not part of that picture. So when C leaves the relationship for whatever reason, then C will not be entitled to that equitable distribution of funds. So they wouldn't she would need to have a some sort of agreement. Now when there's not an agreement and there are two people, the courts have said you can file for a constructive trust at the end of it because it's not fair. You know, C might have put off school to support or in this case, let's call them Y and Z. Y and Z aren't married. In that case, you would have two people and the courts would say, no, 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 this isn't fair. But when there's more than two people involved, the courts haven't gone that far. So what you would need to do is have some sort of arrangement. So for example, I like trusts. And, you know, I know I know a lot of people think trusts are some really big important deal. And they can be. But a trust can be very simple and you can structure it so that you can make sure that at the end of everything, somebody, when they leave, will be protected. And you can do that also with wills. 
And you need to have contracts, though, because just having an agreement by itself might not be sufficient to make it enforceable. So with regard to medical decisions, a lot of things uh, might be able to be taken care of with an advanced health directive. That's what Maryland calls a living will. And you can appoint any person to be your healthcare agent as long as they're over 18 and they're capable and legally competent. And when you do that, then you could ensure that they are allowed access or at least try to ensure that they can have access to hospitals, that they could maybe ride along with you. And amazingly enough, Maryland still has domestic partnerships, even after national marriage equality. And you can do that through domestic partnerships too. The only problem is if you're poly, you can't do it because you only get one domestic partner and you get zero if you're already married. So by having or by naming a person a healthcare agent, you can help to ensure that they could have some say in your medical decisions. And you're allowed to name alternates. So you could name your primary and then you could name a secondary partner. Or if you don't want to order them, you could just name two different people. And that way they could have access to being involved in that decision when it's important to you. So kind of going into a few things like selecting a lawyer. I actually have like three things that I constantly say to people and you can add on definitely. And this isn't legal advice. This is just advice on when you're picking somebody. Mm -hmm. The three things I say is first off, they need to be qualified in the area of law that you're dealing with. So if you're dealing with criminal law, obviously you need a criminal law lawyer. If it's someone who is, uh, you know, you're doing something with, you know, divorcing or family stuff, you should talk to a family lawyer. Um, even if they're a good person, you probably want someone who's qualified in that area. The second thing is you need to be able to be comfortable with your lawyer and they need to be comfortable with the content. So if your case is surrounding something like polyamory, they need to be able to defend you and take up for you in that sense and be comfortable actually explaining your side with that. So if they're not comfortable with the subject matter, you know, we also have a lot of listeners that are, you know, kinky. So like if they can't handle that, they probably shouldn't be your lawyer. If they're going to look bashful or shy or not be uh, comfortable with the, with the uh, information that they're presenting, they probably shouldn't be your lawyer. So it needs to be those three things. And you really need to be able to be comfortable being honest with them. I, I only heard two things. You have to make sure they're qualified and then you have to be comfortable with them. What was the, the third? They need to be comfortable with the subject matter. So if, it, if your case has something to do with poly and also we have like kink listeners or it has kink in it and that subject matter is going to be brought up and they're going to have to you know, defend your side or explain your side, they need to be comfortable with that subject. So that way they're not getting up in front of a judge and being bashful about uh, your side. Okay. I mean, the the first point um, I just really can't address because if you are an attorney in Maryland, then you're supposed to be competent to do any legal matter. So I'm not going to 
I think, yes, if you are, feel very strongly that you need someone who has years of experience, then that's a very personal decision. But I think that I, I just can't speak to that. But regarding being comfortable, I know that, again, it, the rule is, we're, is that lawyers are supposed to be able to take in these cases and not judge. And it's really hard to do. I mean, you know, it. I don't ever look down on a client, but I might have something going on in my head. But the most important thing is to recognize that an attorney is going to be a professional and to hold your confidences and to make sure that you can trust that they can do that. Uh, for example, uh, recently I had two people come in and wanted a prenup and Toward the end of the meeting, they said, oh, well, should we mention it? And sh one of them looked a little bit embarrassed. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. I have given a presentation at a swingers club. There's really not much you can say that's going to shock me. And they ended up saying something that kind of changed everything we've been talking about for the past half hour. And I know it's really difficult to be able to trust a professional or even to to put it aside that this is their role. When I go to the doctor, I still lie about how about how much I drink. I'll say, you know, oh, I don't drink ever, and that's just not true. And when you go to an attorney, you have to realize that this is someone who is there to help you and that anything you say can or will be held in the strictest of confidence because if it isn't then they're not going to have their job and i certainly know that i don't want to lose my license after you know 3 years of law school and hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt i know it's 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 really easy to say and it's really hard to practice and if you go to NCSF, you can see a list of kink-friendly professionals. Now, that's not really vetted by anyone, I don't think. Um, but you should be, but you could be able to see on there. Oh, okay. Well, this person at least is comfortable enough to say that they are kink-friendly. And there's also similar services for poly-friendly too. The most important part is that you need to be able to remember that your attorney is there to help you. They're not there to judge you. They're not there to think about anything related to them because it's just not what we do. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that at least. Yeah. And you you were talking about, you know, the importance of them understanding that it'll be held in the strictest of confidence. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that uh, if you break that confidence, you can potentially be disbarred. Can't you? Uh, you can, you can, yeah, there's pretty severe consequences. The only caveat to that is when it's, you're going to say, I'm going to kill this person or, you know, I'm going to steal all this money, but you need to make sure to remember that when you go and speak to a lawyer, anything you say is going to be held in the strictest of confidence. And I think because lawyers wrote the rules of evidence, that was the oldest privilege. And then, you know, the same thing with a uh, clergy member, but not with doctors. 
Psychotherapists, yes. Doctors, no. There is no doctor-patient confidentiality illegally in Maryland. So in certain circumstances, what would you say is times that you probably should keep your mouth shut in regards to your relationships with your poly? If you're in a legal situation, when do you want to keep your mouth shut? It really depends on what the, the issue is. You know, for example, like I said, criminal law really doesn't come up. I know that other, I've heard people say that it can be illegal because it's a common law marriage and then there's bigamy, but A, I just don't see how that would work. And more importantly, Maryland doesn't have common law marriages. I mean, I'm sure you have DC viewers and we do, or listeners, excuse me. Uh, but in uh, DC, you know, you have to be common law married. You have to put this out and hold it out to people. When, for example, you are doing something relating to adoption, I think a lot of time it's A, how comfortable you are personally in discussing it. I know a lot of people just don't feel comfortable discussing it. I know you had a great interview recently with uh, Tamara Pincus where you talked a lot about coming out. And so a lot of times it's a question of how comfortable you are when it comes to the possible consequences. I think a lot of times it could be, again, maybe it relates to kids and the other person is going to say, Oh no, no, no. He's a polyamorous. He's a pervert, blah, blah, blah. And that could be hurtful then if that's true. And the judge doesn't really think or the judge is more conservative or a jerk or whichever. And in that case, you know, you don't need to volunteer. I think it's called a, a lie of omission. I mean, if you don't have to say anything, then, you know, why would you? And I think a lot of times the concern is that people think that they can handle a lot of things on their own. And I know that most of the poly people I met have been really bright and really capable and could handle a lot of things on their own. But when there is a, a legal situation, you know, and I'm not talking about running a red light or, you know, getting too tipsy in Baltimore if and when the Orioles ever do anything, which I honestly hope they don't because I'm a Red Sox fan. But um, podcast is over. Sorry, we'll talk. To you. <laughs> that's that's okay. I'm so. I mean, I'm just glad I didn't mention I'm a Patriots fan. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, You're losing. Play. I like. I like to. I like to poke fun at, at, at Cassie and tell her that I like the Steelers, just because not because oh. I really care either way, but just because it's kind of fun to watch. I'm her. a very big Ravens fan. I don't really care too much about baseball, but you start talking about football, what's a different story? Well, well, I mean, to be fair, the Patriots and the Ravens don't really play that or play that often. So, I mean, we're not. You know, we eat the we eat the Steelers too. Let's we can bond over that, but. A lot of, but the important thing to remember is that you, when you are in a serious situation, even though you might be smart and clever enough to handle these things, to understand the legal rules, and a big advantage to having an attorney is that the attorney is detached and disinterested. I mean, not disinterested in that he doesn't care or she doesn't care. It's that it took me a long time to figure out that. 
the best way for me to look at this is to do it dispassionately. And when you're in a serious situation where you could end up with big repercussions, having somebody who is looking at it from a professional standpoint can help because they don't have any concerns that are weighing them down. They're not afraid or they're not excited. So when you are in a legal situation and it comes to knowing whether or not to volunteer it, I would say, ask your attorney. And yeah, and I think there's, I think there's specific legal situations, uh, you know, moving into, into, off of like, you know, property and all that stuff for a minute. But I think there's specific legal situations where people are, are, because, you know, the fact of the matter is most of the time, I think that from a BDSM standpoint, um, you know, you, you, you have a lot more potential negative legal interaction from that standpoint, you know, but I think with poly, um, you know, the main things people are worried about is, is, you know, any kind of like any kind of proceeding that, that risks, the children, a, you know, like, like a nasty divorce or something like that, where somebody wants to bring it up and then, you know, like being out at work. Like, I think those are the two big, uh, in terms of like actual, like concerns of legal actions. Um, and I guess the bigamy thing, actually, that, that's a really interesting point that I haven't thought too much about that I guess could really come up, depend on where you're, the bigamy thing. Depending oh, on where the bigamy? Yeah. Sorry. It tells you how much I say the word. No, it's, that's okay. I mean, like if you look at it and you're aware of bisexuality, you think it's, but bigamy yeah but it's bigamy yes it is big of you <laughs> thank you i mean bigamy but bigamy it's first of all it you'd have to have a valid marriage in the first part and then afterwards you'd have to hold out the other person as your spouse so for example and remember there is no common law marriage in maryland a lot of people say oh we're common law married and you know that's nice and it's good to have that sense of closeness but it doesn't happen in maryland there are only a handful of states or jurisdictions that do it one of them is dc but and i've never actually seen it play out but my thought would be a a second marriage is void from the beginning and b since it's a crime you need to have intent to commit it so you know, we're, this is not a really big thing. I know there have been concerns about immigration and, you know, because this administration has said that they're going to deport criminals, but, you know, it's, it just happens so rarely. And there's only a few States that do it, that that's not a concern. And with children, I can understand the other person wanting to say, Oh, this person or my partner's a, polyamorous you know she's has low moral value but the thing is people forget this that the other term for polyamory is consensual non-monogamy so if the person were to bring it up then you could just say yeah but you knew about it you agreed to it i mean if the other if the person says oh they're polyamorous when in actuality they're just cheating then that's not polyamory at all so it's the same sort of issue yeah that's uh you know we're we're polyamorous but my spouse doesn't know about it yet kind of a thing right i mean that's not poly. yeah that's just cheating so i i i actually i think this brings up an interesting point though talking about the bigamy stuff and and you know dc and maryland and this brings up an interesting point that actually has some uh 
some personal interest behind this question. But so what would, in a state like Maryland, where there's not common law marriage, what would it take uh, for a second relationship to be considered a marriage? I mean, would it have, would it, would it be a legal marriage? Would there be, or would there be something else that could fulfill that? Like a commitment ceremony or living together a certain period of time or, or a combination of a lot of factors. Like it, would there be, would there be a way without actually going and legally getting married in Maryland? Uh, you know, and I guess maybe as a more general rule states that don't have, uh, uh, common law marriage, where you could wind up probably not with anything actually happening, but potentially running afoul of that. Uh, with running afoul of a bigamy statute? Yes. Yep. Like, could there be something that would be like construct that could be constructed as marriage, even if you didn't actually legally get married and you're not in a common law marriage state? Yes and no. So to so for the purposes of bigamy. If you're not in a common law marriage state, then no, you don't have to worry about that. And let's say that this is a a negative consequence of trying to plan around something while being married. You know, like I said, if you're married and one of the spouses dies, then the other one is automatically entitled to a certain percentage. Uh, So if you draft a will, so say so say we're married. Um, I should be so lucky. Let me, yeah, no, let me, and I'm, let me, let me clarify exactly, just because I think it, it'll make it easier. But like, so take our situation with our partner, for example. So we live together. We've been living together for a significant period of time. We have a kid we raised together. We're talking about doing a commitment ceremony. We're probably going to do legal things to, you know, help provide some of the rights. You know, so is there is there any way in Maryland that something like that could wind up being considered marriage? Like, if you have all those things in place. No, it can't be considered marriage, but you can use a variety of techniques to try and get some of the benefits of marriage. So, you know, you you mentioned that, you know, three people are raising a kid together. Right now in Maryland, there is something called de facto parenthood. And that has four requirements. I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but uh, you can see them in a blog post on my page. And one of them is living with the kid for a long enough time to have a parental relationship. One of them is that a biological or adoptive parent consents to this. And one of, uh, one of them is providing providing financial support without any expectation of uh recompense and there's a fourth one but if you can get that sort of thing in then when the relationship ends for whatever reason then that third party may be able to say i am considered a parent i have the right to also seek custody of this child so there you can get a big benefit. And like I said, with inheritance, there's another way, easy way to do it. Just write a will that says it. I, and I actually think, so we were, I, we'd actually want to talk about the de facto parent thing for a minute. Cause so I just actually saw this recently and I think it's a really interesting point. And the reason I find it so interesting is because it's something that I think most people aren't aware of and it potentially has, you know, it's kind of like how we were talking earlier about, you know, getting involved in a marriage or you're, you're winding up in a contract that you don't know that you're, winding up in, you know, the de facto parent thing, I think is actually really interesting because it can create both legal rights and legal obligations potentially. 
And I don't think a lot of people are aware of, of the situations that can create those and exactly what can happen with that. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people aren't. And in, I mean, in Maryland, Wisconsin, uh, not New York, um, people think it is, but not really. But uh, D.C., for example, has a third, per, uh, third party statute allowing, I think, either visitation or custody. But yeah, there are ways to make sure that this other person who is not a biological or adoptive parent can be considered a parent. Now, being considered a parent doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get custody, but it does mean that you can throw your hat in the ring when there is a, a fight. Right. And my so my understanding of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you can... So if you, if you meet those four criteria, the, the living with, providing support, the parent fostering, I forget what the fourth one is, um, but essentially... Do you want to just give me one? I was going to say, do you want to just give me one second off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. But my understanding is so essentially, essentially you got two things that attach to that. One is you can go for custody or, or visitation, that relationship breaks up, which I think is not a bad thing, but I think it's something that people should definitely be aware of when they're you know having these relationships. But also my understanding, uh, I was talking to, I think actually, buddy, actually somebody from the NCSF recently, just in passing and saying that, you know, that probably also opens a door for that, that person to potentially be a uh, challenge for child support as well, if that relationship ends. Yeah, it is. Um, well, so custody and support are treated pretty differently. I mean, I know that, for example, in Louisiana, of all places, 30 years ago, there is a there were situations where multiple fathers were considered for the purpose of support. And yes, in I, unfortunately, Maryland, I haven't seen any, them draft any forms for support. And it's a possibility there, too. Uh, I mean, now we're talking about a situation where there's three people or there's two people, the either biological or adoptive parents plus the third party who get into a fight about custody and then they want to have a fight about support. And I think that more than a lawyer, they really need a, you know, a good group therapist, <laughs> but, um, and it's, but it is a possibility, but the, the four requirements are that w either a biological or adoptive parent, one of them must consent to a relationship between the child and the prospective parent they have to live in the same household. And that's important because I know a lot of poly families are not necessarily located in one house. And they, like you said, uh, and good call, uh, makes me think that I got to review more stuff. The, there has to be some financial support and taking responsibility for the kids' care. And there must, uh, the relationship must have gone on long enough for a parental type relationship to have formed. So, and once you've got those four, then you can, and you mentioned, oh, you can, you can possibly seek out custody or visitation. I mean, a third party can seek visitation. It's the, the custody that is a little, a little bit different. And Maryland has some silly, Maryland's not great on that, but like, but you can seek custody and that doesn't necessarily mean you'll win it, but it means that you can try. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you're able to throw that in because, like I said, that's that's newer too, as far as I understand. But moving, so moving on from from things that people should be aware of that they might be, uh, you know, creating without knowing. You were talking about you know things you can do in a in a household situation. We had talked a little bit about like wills and um, other things like that. But what I, I was interested in the idea of like cohabitation agreements. Like, what are things that might typically be covered in something like that? The the big things in cohabitation agreements would be what happens when at the end of it, you're all done, but you can have it be as broad or as narrow as you want. You know, that's the nice thing about a cohabitation agreement, which is more like a contract versus marriage, which comes with all of these inherent things that people don't even consider. But you can talk about who is responsible for taking care of the house. You can talk about who is responsible for providing money you can be even more detailed and say when if you're going to share property say you have a car together you can say who's going to be able to use the car at this point you can say who's going to you know take care of the animals what happens when you know somebody loses their job regardless my girlfriend gets the cat back she takes the cat really i don't want that fucking cat <laughs> Don't don't say that. My cat's right here, and she looked up and was like, "Who doesn't want a cat?" But like I said, you can be as detailed as you want. I mean, a big part of it is to make sure that there is protection at the end of a relationship. You know, because you don't want to put your life in someone else's hands for years, and then they change their mind abruptly, and it's over. But you can be more detailed. And honestly, yeah, I think that you're looking at all of the details of a cohabitation agreement, you know, being as precise as possible, making sure, you know, who's going to do the dishes, who's going to take care of the cats, you know, and yeah, so maybe your girlfriend can get her cat back, things like that. But looking at them is important it's kind of like uh, a pre-marriage therapy or a pre-marriage counseling that, you know, might be required in some Southern states, for example, um, or like, you know, for, for various religious institutions. It's kind of like that. It's kind of making sure that you really are aware of what is important and what not just what is not just important to you, but what needs to be done in a functioning household because somebody's got to do the dishes Somebody's got to take care of the cats. Somebody's got to take care of the dogs. And I think just even looking at them can be beneficial, even if you don't want to necessarily do one. I wanted to say, you know, regarding the powers of attorney trusts, uh, or not trust, powers of regarding powers of attorney, regarding advanced health directives, and regarding wills, those are three things that I think every adult should in the world should have. But if you go to my website, I developed a little interactive feature where you can describe your family. You can say, I'm not married. I have multiple partners. Uh, I have a kid and I want one of my partners who's not a parent to be involved. And I own property with other people. And it'll explain why those things are important for your potential situation. And it doesn't cover as many situations as 
you know, there are poly families. It's like a rainbow. There's, you know, people on all ends of the spectrum, but as many people who, uh, many types of poly relationships as there are people who do poly. Exactly. And then the, I just want to say one last thing about advanced directives and powers of attorney in that, and that is that they are really important for same sex couples because religious freedom laws have been passed recently in some states. I don't think in Maryland though, but they say, yeah, if you're, if it would offend your religious sensibilities, then you don't have to accept uh, a same sex marriage. And I don't know how that's going to end up being held. I know there was a Supreme court case about that recently, but if you have a power of attorney or an advanced directive, it protects you because you can say, Oh, I don't believe in same sex marriage but I don't think the Bible says anything about powers of attorney or advanced directives. So those things can be really important when you're not in a uh, opposite sex cis relationship. And actually I had one thing I didn't know if we wanted to add in is uh, you had talked about, you know, the need for people to be open to the idea of having some outside the box solutions to problems. Uh, Did you want to add something on that? Uh. Oh no! I was just it's, I, I was so flustered because this sounds like such a great. I mean, from what the the episodes I've heard, they're such great podcasts. I was excited to be on, so it's in my mind. But thank you. Um, well, I know that sometimes uh, you might want to go to a doctor and say, "My leg hurts. I need some aspirin," because you heard a friend say, "I had a leg pain, and you know, I took some aspirin, and now it's great," but. The thing is, if you go to a doctor because your leg hurts and it's because you cut yourself, then aspirin's not going to help. So what you really need to do is when you can find a lawyer that you trust, uh, and I hope that you can trust most lawyers. If you use me, I really hope you can trust me. But one thing you need to be able to do is really think not about how you want to get what you want, but what you want. Because we've talked about cohabitation agreements, about de facto parenting. Uh, I know we've talked about adoption. And, you know, adult adoption is something that can get people things that they didn't even know they could get. Um, So when you're poly, you need to, you should realize that the way that is the best for most might not be the best for you. And that doesn't mean that there's not another way to accomplish your goals. So when I am mediating or talking to a client, I always ask not what do you want me to do, but what do you want to get out of this? What is most important to you? Because each person's situation is unique. And just because there doesn't seem an easy way to get something doesn't mean that there's not a way. So it's kind of like vegan cooking. You know, you, yeah, you're not going to be able to put eggs in a hollandaise sauce, but that doesn't mean you can't make a really tasty sauce that works well on a crab cake Benedict. (laughs) And I think that's a really good point because especially when it comes to like poly relationships, there isn't a lot of things that are established law-wise specifically for poly people. So being willing to kind of adjust on the way to get there is probably very helpful. 
we had mentioned you. Um, I don't know if it was before we we started recording, but you know that we've been uh, our our polycule's been looking potentially to adopt. And the lawyer that we were talking to uh, this last time, you know, he was like, "Look, uh, there's two ways to go about this, and the one way you try and make case law, and the other way we actually get it done." And you know, like, what's more important to you to do right now? I, I think that's a really good point that your attorney made. Uh, and I know that when I'm talking with other other poly professionals or leaders in the poly community, there are a lot of people who want to be activists and, you know, not politically, but personally, I can be very conservative and activism or making case law is not my goal. I want to make sure that people are families are secure and safe so that they can love each other and be happy and do what they need to do. So it's exactly right. Do you want to make case law or do you want to live your life? Yeah, I actually had a a friend who worked for the NCSF. And one of the things that she said that has really stuck with me for a very long time was, do you want to be right or do you want to win? And sometimes you might have to go about it a different way to still get the same result, but it might not be uh, as empowering emotionally, but it can possibly still get you the same result that you were looking for. I uh, couldn't agree more with you. That is exact. I agree hundred percent. Well, Ben, thank you. You have anything else? We're going to do the uh, speed round in just a second. Do you have anything else you want to add in there that we didn't cover that you wanted to get in? No, I'm excited about this speed round. I was on its academic as a, as a teenager and I can remember Mac McKeer, Mac, whatever his name was, you know, doing the lightning round. It was fun. So I'm excited about this. All right. So uh, it is, what is it? 10 questions in 60 seconds, Cassie. And the yeah. idea is to make it through all 10 in 60 seconds. So first thing that comes to the top of your head. All right. So <laughs> the first question is, what is something you're not very good at? Self-care. Tell me something that is true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Cats can be more loyal than dogs. Uh, Next question. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? It's not about finding the partners that are perfect. It's about finding the partners that you can live with. What are three things you couldn't live without? Uh, Affection. uh, My cat. I'm really into cats. And uh, NBA TV when the Celtics are playing well. What turns you on? Consent, affirmative consent. Awesome. A book you would recommend for our listeners? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? I have been ziplining through a rainforest. Cool. Who's your movie star crush? Or TV. Or TV. That redhead from uh, Mad Men. I can't remember her name. She plays Joan. What's something you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, right now, I am writing a paper for a family law journal about the need to expand domestic vi- uh, restraining orders to protect against cyber harassment, such as revenge porn. Oh, that's awesome. And where can people find you? They can find me online at Polyamory Lawyer uh, on Twitter or my website, which is polyamory.law, or uh, hopefully at that uh, Capital One Arena when the Bruins are in town. 
Hey, and it's uh, Christina Hendricks, by the way. Thank you. Sorry about that. Ugh. You're welcome. Yeah, and she is, uh, yeah. All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on. Well, thank you. It was my, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, so if you guys live in Maryland and you're in non-monogamous relationships and you're interested in talking to a lawyer who might be able to help you work out cohabitation agreements or anything along those lines, go ahead and reach out to Ben. If you are not in Maryland, go to the NCSF's website and look at their kink-aware professionals directory, and you can find a lawyer in your area who is familiar with non-monogamy. We'll put links to both Ben's site and to the NCSS Kink Aware Professional list in the show notes at atouchofflavor.com forward slash 026. While you're on the website, if you have a topic that you want us to talk about, if you have a guest that you think that we should bring on the air, hop over to atouchofflavor.com forward slash ask, send that in. We'd love to hear your ideas about what we should talk about next or who we should bring on. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1.